The difference between love and lust is love is loyal. Hey everybody, welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I am Tiffany, your host. And today I'm drinking my McUltra, keeping it simple, while I share the case of Cherie and Bruce Miller. Cherie Miller was born October 13th, 1971, and she had to grow up kind of fast. She was already out on her own at the age of 16. She kind of bounced around. She lived in the trailer park. She had three children and three past marriages under her belt by the age of 26. She found herself out of work, so she decided to answer an ad for a bookkeeper. It was at a junkyard. It was called BD Auto Salvage. It was in Flint, Michigan. Bruce Miller was 47 at the time. He was the owner of the company, and he was very successful. Despite the age difference, things moved fast for the couple. They had fun together, and they both enjoyed a lot of the same things. They both loved to go dancing, and they loved country music. They quickly went from dating to living together, and then they were married. He was head over heels in love with Cherie. This was also his fourth marriage, so he really was hopeful that this one was going to be the last one for both of them. As time went on, friends, however, weren't so impressed with Cherie. They thought that she was going too fast with his money. She spent a lot of money really quick. Thank God that, you know, her husband is a hard worker. He was able to provide, but people just thought that it was a little excessive. She did work, though, still. She was a salesperson for Mary Kay Cosmetics. This allowed her to sell directly to clients. She could go to homes. She could travel around the country. He even tried to help her out with this, and he bought her a computer so she would be able to keep track of her accounts and really make this into something. He was happy that she was happy. Only seven months into the marriage, it would all come crumbling down. On November 8th, 1999, Cherie was talking with Bruce, and she told him that she was going to order a pizza, so when he was on his way home from work, he could stop by and pick it up. She was home with the kids. One of her kids was sick, and she had a friend named Laura coming over. About an hour or so went by, and he still wasn't home. And he hasn't called to say that he was going to be late. She thought that was really odd. He was pretty punctual, so if he was going to be late or something, he would have let her know. Especially, she's waiting on a pizza. She called Chuck, who lived down the road, and that was Bruce's brother, to see if he's maybe heard from Bruce. Maybe he stopped by the house real quick. But Chuck said he hadn't heard from him either. And he told her, you know, don't worry. I'll jump in the car and I'll head down there and make sure everything's okay. I'm sure everything's fine. When he pulled up, all the lights were still on. And the door was unlocked, but nothing looked out of the ordinary. It wasn't until he walked up into the office area, and that's when he saw Bruce lying on the floor in a puddle of his own blood, and he quickly called 911. When officers arrived, they pretty much took over the scene, had everything roped off, and it's time to look for evidence. He had been shot in the face and in the chest, but 
other than the 20 gauge shotgun shells and his body lying there, there was absolutely nothing weird about the scene. His wallet was missing and his pockets were empty. Police thought that this might have been a robbery gone wrong because Bruce was known in town to keep cash on him and quite a bit of cash. So maybe somebody took advantage of the situation, caught him off guard, and they robbed him. Officers, they're going to have to go and do the house call and tell Cherie that her husband has been gunned down at work. She was your average wife who just lost their husband. She was a mess. And she didn't really have any info to share with them. You know, everybody loved Bruce. She couldn't think of anyone. She was expecting him to come home with dinner. That's all she knew. But, you know, they're going to they're gonna ask you, who wants to hurt him? Think about it. And as she sits there and she thinks, a name does come to her. And she says, okay, Harold Hutchinson. Harold is an employee. And John was his brother. John owed Bruce $2,000. So they thought maybe that could be a motive. Maybe he doesn't have the money to square it away and he panicked and he murdered him. First, they decide they want to go talk to Harold first, though, because he is his employee. Maybe he's seen something around the shop. Maybe he knows something. Maybe he tells him his secrets. He did tell officers that his brother called him early in the morning and made a very odd statement. He told his brother that he wouldn't have to worry about Bruce anymore. And when he's like, what the hell are you talking about? He said, Bruce has been disposed of. Well, how did he know that he's been disposed of? Not many people knew that yet. When they look into John, more red flags come up. Turns out he's being investigated for fraud. They were looking at him into doing VIN switching when they removed the VINs on cars. That way they can resell them or resell parts. A VIN is pretty much a car's fingerprint. Bruce was going to have a meeting with investigators very soon. It wasn't going to be long before they were going to have to talk to his brother's boss. So now John's looking pretty good. They make the trip and they go see him the next day. When they talked to him, he told them, I was home. I was home the whole day, except for one time I went and ran to the grocery store. The store was located in Otis, which was about a seven to eight mile trip from his home. But it was about 20 miles away from the murder scene. So that is a difference. He did have a receipt on hand and he gave that to them, but obviously they still have to go investigate and make sure you're not lying. But in the meantime, while they're looking into his alibi, John showed up to the funeral for Bruce and Cherie caused this scene, just screaming, saying, he killed my husband, get him out of here. Bruce's brother, Chuck, he didn't know what or who to believe. He didn't think that he could do this to his brother, He still wasn't sure. Somebody did it. They made him leave. Police did go to the store that John said that he went to. Apparently he was a regular there, so they actually could confirm that he was there. And the time that he was there was the time of the murder. So he's crossed off. She's causing a scene over nothing. Cherie's alibi also checked out. Actually, 
is pretty rock solid. Her friend and the kids all said that she was there. Her phone put her there. Plus, when they kind of looked into the background, because of course they always have to look at the financial status to see who has anything to gain, it appeared that she didn't have anything to gain. They weren't able to locate any life insurance that he had. So it's not like she was about to hit the jackpot. So they pretty much crossed her off the list as well. Four months go by. There hasn't been a new lead. No one's really finding anything anymore. And it's starting to get cold. But by the end of February in 2000, the Genesee County Sheriff's Department got a call. It was from a lawyer representing the Cassidy family. Their call was to inform them that they had some information that they wanted to forward. His client, Jerry Cassidy, had committed suicide after admitting to killing Bruce Miller. Jerry was a former police officer himself from Kansas City, Missouri, but he lost his job to unseen circumstances and moved and started working as a pit boss at Harris Casino in Reno, Nevada. When some of his friends couldn't reach them, they went over to the home and they wanted to check on him. And they found him with a twenty-two caliber rifle shot. He had the Bible in his lap and it was open to Matthew, thou shall not kill. According to court documents obtained by Dateline NBC, he had a history of substance abuse and he suffered from depression. When police arrive, they look over the scene and they notice that on his windowsill, there were a bunch of picture frames. They all had kind of different people in it, but there was a particular woman that it just seemed to be more focused on. There was also a ring in a box. Police there, they don't have a clue what any of this means. But they did find the briefcase at the scene, and there was a note that was taped on the front of it, pretty much stating that he had killed Bruce and that he had help with it. Inside the briefcase was so much more. Oh, so much more. (laughs) It wasn't until investigators arrived from Michigan were able to come look at the scene, and right away, they knew who was in those photos. It was Cherie Miller. Inside the briefcase, they found screenshots and printouts of instant messages and emails between Jerry and Cherie. And we're talking stacks. In July of 1999, Cherie used the computer that her loving husband Bruce gave to her for work, And she started cruising chat rooms. And then she also used it to plan a trip for her and her friend to go take a vacation trip in Reno. This vacation trip is when she meets Jerry for the first time in person. They had been chatting over instant message and emails for some time, but now it was was getting real. They were now moving from behind the screen. On Snapped, he had a co-worker say that um, pretty much he loved her because she would allow him to do anything he wanted in bed. And that she came into Jerry's life when he was at a low point. His marriage was over. He wasn't able to see his son. He was in a new area. He didn't really have any friends there yet. 
He was vulnerable, he was lonely, and he was looking for love. And he found it in the wrong place. The web. When detectives were combing through all the emails and the instant messages between the two, they couldn't believe what they were finding. They were able to piece this whole thing together. They knew that they were going to have to go and talk to Shuri again, obviously. Like, this was a freaking explosive bombshell. But they want to make sure they have everything they can think of. So when they bring her back in, she's not able to talk her way out of anything. Like, honey, you're done. (laughs) She was very convincing the first time. Literally, they had her rock-solid alibi counted out. They found out that she started going into these chat rooms as early as one to two months after getting married to Bruce. One to two months, she's already on the computer looking for somebody new. What the fuck? I'm sorry, but that's fucking trash. And even though Cherie and Jerry live thousands of miles away, they were in constant contact with each other. There were over 250 emails exchanged between them and two videos. There's a lot of stuff they had to look over. Meanwhile, Bruce thinks he has the perfect marriage. He has no clue what is going on. He was in love. She was in lust. Jerry fell hard and he fell fast for her. He would tell her, I want you to get a divorce. And she would tell him, I can't. I can't get out. He'll kill me. He will find me and he will kill me. Or he'll kill my family. She told him that Bruce was in the mafia and him and his buddies were doing money laundering. Cherie soon began to use her cosmetics business as a cover so she could go travel to Reno for romantic getaways with Jerry. They were having an affair for quite a few months. It wasn't until one day Jerry got an email from Cherie and it contained a sonogram picture. She was telling Jerry that he was about to be a dad. He was ecstatic. He couldn't wait to start this new journey, but that dream would be crushed very soon because just days after he receives another email. But this one is coming from BD Junk. It's the salvage yard. And it's stating that it's coming from Bruce. In this email, it contained a very different picture. It was a picture of Cherie holding her shirt up. And her stomach is just completely bruised. He captioned in it that he raped her and killed their baby. She had a miscarriage. He was devastated. And he wanted revenge. Problem is, he's a retired police officer. He knows you don't do this. He doesn't do this. He wouldn't normally do this, but she pulled just about every string she had to pull. After finding all of this in the briefcase and on the computer, they feel confident that they have enough to confront Cherie to be like, what the fuck? What is happening here? They had proof that not only did she have knowledge, she cooperated in the fact. It was time to revisit Shuri. When they bring her in, you know, it's the whole, so tell us about your marriage. Did you have a good marriage? And she's, <laughs> she tells them, beautiful. Um, what? 
She then tells them that they were actually just one week away from Bruce adopting her children. They ask her if she's ever had an affair. Oh, no. They ask her, was he abusive? And again, no. All right. So since all this happened, what are you doing with the business? It's in the process of being sold. Before they brought her back in, they decided to also take a second look at the financial status. Now, originally, it was made out to believe that she wasn't going to get anything. There was no financial gain round one. Round two looks a little different. She did make out a little bit on her husband's death. She got $50,000, and that was from his work, life insurance. She got about 200000 lump sum of cash. She got rid of a lot of things. And then she was making $2,400 a month from Social Security. So yeah, I'd say she was sitting kind of pretty. They confront her about all this, and she's like, okay, and what? She was actually quite a bitch. I saw the episode Killer Affair on Oxygen. And I just wanted to smack her. It's just, it was just annoying to hear her lies. This is about to be my favorite part. So they pull out one of the two tapes that they found in the briefcase. Both of them are disturbing in their own ways. So I'm going to explain both of them to you. One of them was her standing there and she was videotaping her children playing in the front yard. And she was saying on the videotape to Jerry things like, oh, are you ready for this? You think you can handle this? Pretty much saying like, this is coming to you. Are, are you ready? Now, the second one, and this is the one that they pull out while she's there and they start rolling the tape. And it's a tape of her masturbating. Can we just take a second to think? <laughs> what would go through your mind when you're at a police investigation and you know she doesn't think you have this? <laughs> She's yelling, are you out of your mind? I just, I can't. I can't. Just bam, there you are. Going to town. You know they watched it. They probably watched it twice. Her response was that, well, when you're online, nobody knows who you are. It's just a game. Everybody does it. So then they tell her about the trail of emails and instant messages that they have between the two of them. And she goes on to say, yeah, people can change that. Anyone can change an email. I can change any email that's sent to me. Anyone can do it. They remind her of the text that she sent to Jerry telling him to take the wallet and the cash in the pocket. She said that Jerry was just, he was hurt and he's upset because she didn't want anything to do with him. His drinking and his drug use was out of control and she couldn't take it anymore. She was done. Pretty sure by now she knows that this probably wasn't going as planned and she let them know that she was ready for her car and she wanted to go. When she first got there, they told her, you are free to go at any time. 
but that coupon expired and she was taken into custody for conspiracy to commit murder. While they were getting ready for trial, they had to make sure that they were able to fit all the missing pieces in this puzzle so they could show without a doubt that this woman at least had something to do with her husband's murder. It showed that he drove all night and he met Cherie at a rest stop on I-75 South. She gave him her phone. That way they communicate and it couldn't be tracked. That way when she got back home, she could just use the landline and no one would even think anything of it. She also made it back to the house before anyone knew she was even missing. She was back before Laura came over to unwillingly be her alibi. She told Jerry that she was going to call Bruce at 5 o'clock and she was going to tell him about the pizza. She was going to call him and hang up after just one ring. That was his sign to go for it. She was getting ready to make the call. She was on the phone with Bruce when he was gunned down. She was talking to him about the pizza. She heard the whole thing. That is disturbing. The fact that you actually need to hear it happen. That's a dark place, man. And the thing that gets me the most is she told people that he's the only person who ever got her. And that's how you thank him. After the ambush was over, she hung up the phone, went on about her night, and just knew eventually the police were coming. They then both decided that they should probably take a break from each other just to let things kind of cool down for a while, and then he could move in, and then they would get married. They would start their life together. And that's exactly what Jerry did. He gave her her space, and he let things lie down. But when Jerry was ready to reignite with his soon-to-be bride, he had a hard time reaching her. She wasn't taking his calls. If she would respond at all to him, it was mean messages like, quit calling me and leave me alone. He was devastated. He was confused. What happened? He decided that he was going to need to do a little digging himself. Unfortunately, he hit gold because he found out that Cherie was never pregnant. That was an old sonogram. It actually had been dated 1993. In 1995, she had a tubal ligation procedure and she was no longer able to conceive. All those bruises on her... That was her makeup artistry. She put those bruises on herself to make it look like she was beaten. She had to get this ball rolling. The kicker of all of it is when Jerry found out that within only one month of Bruce's death, she moved in a new boyfriend into the home. He was a local delivery man named Jeff Foster. Could you imagine? Jerry figured it out. He had been taken advantage of. He now knew he took an innocent man's life and he just couldn't live with it. But he wasn't going down alone. 
After two days of deliberation, she was found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder along with first degree and second degree murder. Altogether, that was life plus 50 years, so it was no chance of parole ever. But in August of 2008, her conviction was overturned. The federal court judge determined that Jerry's suicide letter should have been admissible as evidence. It should have never been admitted into the court and seen by the jurors because he was dead and couldn't be cross-examined. So a new trial date was set. On July 29, 2009, she was released on bond. After several years of back and forth, her conviction was reinstated on August 2nd of 2012. I was going to try to list it all, but trust me, it's a lot. <laughs> so if you want more, Google. February 11th of 2014, the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit affirmed the Federal District Court's reinstatement of Cherie's convictions and sentences. Per the Flint Journal newspaper that after 17 years of this woman crying wolf, saying she had nothing to do with it, she finally confesses in April of 2016. She writes a four-page letter to both Genesee Circuit Judge Judith Fullerton and Genesee County Prosecutor David Lighton. She pretty much confessed, stating that she used sex and lies to manipulate Jerry. She wanted Bruce dead, even though in the article she called him a great man and the only man who loved me for me. She went on to say, I destroyed a lot of lives. It is time to end the lies and tell the truth. She explained that she was living two lies and she was afraid of getting caught. She didn't want Bruce's family or anyone else for that matter to figure out who she really was. And she thought that she could cover it up by having Bruce murdered. She said that she knew that Jerry had to take a 16 and a half hour trip to come commit this murder. Within that time, she could have stopped it and she didn't. But at least she acknowledged it. She is back now serving a life sentence with no chance of parole. And if you ask me, that is exactly where she needs to be. She took a man who was down on his luck, fed him a bunch of lies, made him commit a murder when he was a former cop. They take an oath not to do that. This case makes me mad because this is one of the scenarios that really pissed me off the most. You know, this guy just wanted to save her and he wanted to raise her three kids. He just wanted to love her and be loved back. And instead she had him murdered. What do you think about this case? I want to know your opinion. Thank you guys so much for listening. Do not forget to like, follow, subscribe. If you love the show, please leave a five-star review on Apple. Come find me on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't made it over to the website, it's crimeovercocktails.com. While you're there, you can listen to episodes. You can check out merch. And if you want to help support the show, you can follow the links and there's many ways to help donate. Thank you guys so much for listening. I love you guys and we'll talk crime another time. Bye.